This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight we are learning Le'ilui Nishmat to Avraham ben Chaim Yehuda and to Yechezkel ben Avraham. <coughs> Actually, there's also a wash the mother we need to do. And just bear with me, I'm sorry, I completely did not remember this until now. Let me see if I could quickly pull it up. Okay, and the Fuash Lema. To Nechama Bas Chaya Rivka. Alright, now we can get started. So, <clears throat> tonight, Be'ezat Hashem, we will be dealing with um, the topic of honesty and, uh, you know, and trust. Now, we know that honesty and trust is very, very important. This is not something new. Everybody's well aware of this. In fact, also in uh, relationships, this factors in as one of the most important things that people put on their list, maybe not in the, initially, but once people get to know human personality, they realize that honesty is extremely, extremely important. Now, when the idea of, of trust and honesty in a relationship falls short, that becomes a very big problem. I had, a, <clears throat> I had one somebody that came over to me and I sent them to a therapist and they had this, rela- this issue with, with uh, trust. And the therapist said that trust is something very interesting. Trust is a very, very difficult. If there's no trust in the relationship, it's very, very difficult to build it up. And it, like this, this therapist didn't even want to deal with it. He says it, it's a, it's, and that's how you know sometimes that there's honest therapists where they say certain cases they won't take. Not just everybody that's willing to pay, they take him. So I said, you know, trust is a very, very big problem. And if there's a lack of trust in a relationship, obviously there, it depends on a whole bunch of factor of reasons, and sometimes it's an easy fix, sometimes it's a mediocre fix, and sometimes it's a very, very difficult fix. In this particular case, it was a very, very difficult, uh, very difficult fix. So trust and honesty go hand in hand. If you, if you are um, honest, then most likely people will trust you. If you are not honest, then people will have a reason not to trust you. But there's another factor that's sort of in like a gray world in between, is that we're you are honest, but you appear dishonest. You like just do things that are shady, that are sketchy. Just like sometimes it's a face, so I, and I can't explain it. Like sometimes I see people, and I'm like, something is just not right there, I, and I, I can't pinpoint it. And sometimes it, it's it's they're completely honest. It's just there's something off. Maybe there's something more to it that I don't know. I don't know. But there's a certain feeling that you sometimes get. Women get even more. There's a woman intuition. Sometimes they feel that something's off. You know, definitely trust that intuition because that intuition, you know, there's a special bina when it comes to women. So what happens if somebody appears shady? Is not, is really honest, but they appear shady. That's also not very, you have to also make sure that you appear honest. Again, I'm not saying get plastic surgery if your faces just look like a dishonest face, but you have to do things that make you appear honest. In business, this is very, very important. Nobody wants to deal with a, you know, someone in business or a business partner if there's some sort of honesty issue. Even if there is a way to make more money with a guy that's kind of shady, people would prefer to go with somebody that's more honest and make less money than with somebody who is, has a reputation of dishonesty or has a bad feeling for them and make a little bit more money. Most people would do that. So, the, Honesty aspect is, is very, very important in interpersonal relationships, in business. But there's another factor that we, we, we tend to overlook, and that is the honesty that we have with ourselves. We tend to sometimes tell ourselves we are one way when we're really not. 
And there is a very, very big factor in growth, whether it's spiritual character, uh, any type of development that you want to do. If you're not honest with yourself, you won't be able to grow. You'll just continue to lie to yourself to convince yourself that what you're doing is okay, that what you're doing is not problematic. And that can lead to a lot of uh, sort of stationary uh, growth, which is you know, non-existence. You're sort of staying in one place because you're not honest with yourself. I, I want to share with you a story which... I am sure I've said it before, and if not, then I should have said it. It's one of those stories you have to, so you can learn with it. So many lessons. So the Al Al Shehakadosh <clears throat> lived in the 1500s, lived in Tzfat. He was teaching once a class about bitachon, and there was a simple Jewish wagon driver that was passing by the the base medrash, and he heard that the Al Shehakadosh, the big tzaddik, the Al Shech, is going and teaching Torah. So he said, "Let me catch a few words of Torah." Not like nowadays, unfortunately, you have to convince people to come and join a class. There, they went and they were, they were jumping in the opportunity. They were working from night, from the, from, from the morning till the sunset. And here they had an opportunity. He had a few minutes, he ran to hear the al HaKadosh. So he goes over to the al HaKadosh and he listens uh, to the class. And the class is he's speaking about, he's speaking about Emunah and Betachon. And the al goes and says that Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, can support anybody without you doing anything. There's no need for you to do any action on your part. You could sit and you could learn Torah. You could sit and say and, and pray and dive and do all your spiritual growth and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will go and will, will support you. And of course, you know, this is going according to the pain of Rabbi Shem Baruch We're not going to get to this. We'll get to that in a different class. But he goes and he goes and he decides that uh, he's going to listen. He's like, wait a minute. This is the Ashok that says, I don't have to work. Why do, why do I have to work? I'm a wagon driver. Why do I have to schlep in the morning? And then I'm schlepping old people every back and forth. Let me just sit and learn. And I could just probably send me the money. So he goes home that day. <clears throat> and he opens, instead of continue working, he goes home, opens up a Tehillim and starts saying Tehillim. His wife, his family sitting there is looking at him. He's like, what is he's like, okay, you know what? Maybe he had a long day. He wants to say Tehillim. They don't say anything. The next morning, wakes up early as usual, goes to pray as usual, and then instead of going straight from the synagogue to work, he comes back home. And, you know, his wife looks at him, but she doesn't say anything. And he goes and he sits down on the table, opens up some Gemara, and he starts learning. An hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by. The wife goes and says, uh, my dear husband, are you planning on going to work anytime soon? Is it today some sort of legal holiday? <laughs> you know, the, the 500 years ago, whatever legal holidays they had. And is there a reason why you're not going to work? He's like, yeah. No, I was like, I'm not I'm done with work. She's like, what do you mean you're done with work? We need money to survive. And he's like, yeah, we don't need that anymore. And she's like, no, no, no. We do need that. <laughs> Please go to work. And he's like, no, listen. He says, I went to, I went to Shul Torah. And I heard the al God is going and saying that you don't need to work. You sit and you learn. You do your spiritual growth. God will take care of everything. And how's the wife going to start arguing with the al that She can't argue anything, so she doesn't say anything. They had a few you know, gold coins saved up. So a day goes by, two days goes by, a week goes by, and finally they are running out of their money. And the wife goes over to the husband and says, hey, Listen, I appreciate your spiritual pursuit, but uh, we don't have any money left. He says, So far Hashem didn't send anybody knocking on our door, sending us the money. What are we supposed to do? And he said, Listen, I have a horse. I don't need it anymore. I plan on sitting and learning. Sell the horse. Oh, let's go sell the horse and uh, use the money to go and uh, support. So, not knowing what else to do, she went and she sold the horse. Who did she sell the horse? She sold the horse some sort of Gentile that goes and, uh, um, you know, is a treasure hunter. One of those people in the clouds. He was willing to pay good money for this horse and she sold it to him. <clears throat> so he takes his new horse 
and he goes looking for a certain treasure in a, a faraway place where he wanted to go for a very long time, but he didn't have the means of the transportation. He finally gets to a certain cave, and he starts going in, and he starts uh, you know, digging to where he thinks there is some gold there, and lo and behold, he finds gold. He's so excited. He's like, it's unbelievable. He starts loading up the horse one after another, and he loads up the entire, whatever he found, all his treasure that he found, he loaded up on the horse. And the horse is loaded, ready to go, and he's like, you know what? Let me just do one final check. Maybe I missed something. You know how it is. So if you go and you find the gold coin, he says, you're searching that entire area because maybe I found something there. And I remember once, I don't remember where it was when I was a little kid, I found some money on the floor. It, was, it wasn't like a coin. It was like a, you know, like, like a denominator, like a, a five, ten dollars or something like that. And I was like, wait a minute. If somebody lost, this is my mind working when I was a little kid. So if somebody lost, if I found money over here, maybe there's more money. Here I became a gold digger and a coal miner at the same time. I go and I start searching around and I start digging around the area that I found. And lo and behold, I did find extra money. I did. I happened to find some extra money. So this guy probably was thinking similar to everybody else. He goes, listen, if I found gold, let me just do one quick sweep and make sure that I got everything. So he's going over and he's looking over one quick, he's doing a quick sweep over the cave. And he sees there's a little area on top that he didn't search at. It's blocked by a big boulder, a big rock. So he goes and he starts to shimmy his way through. He can't get the rock. He says, you know what? Maybe somebody hid a lot of money in that rock or behind that rock over there. So he takes a stick. He takes a metal pole and he starts banging it until the rock, you know, slowly, slowly moves. And he's trying to push it and it's not working. The rock is not budging. Until finally he uses, he takes his hands and he grabs hold of the rock and he puts his feet on the wall. He's like hanging by it, trying to pull the rock off. And it's not falling off. Until finally he feels it wiggling. He's like, oh, you know, it's happening. It's happening. And he... It falls. It comes off. But the problem is, he comes down with it. And the rock falls right on his chest, and it was a huge rock, and it just crushed him. Died on the spot. Meanwhile, this horse, this poor horse, is sitting outside. His sacks is filled to the brim with gold, and he's sitting over there. It's getting dark. Nobody's coming back. He's not tied up. He's just waiting for his owner. No one's coming. So he figures, you know what? He's going to start walking. What, he's going to stay over here? So he starts walking. Where does he know how to walk? He knows how to walk to only one location, his previous owner. So he goes back to his owner's, uh, previous owner's house right before it gets dark. And he's sitting over there, walks himself into the stables, parks himself right back into the garage. And he sits and he goes and he lays down over there. The sack is heavy. You know, it's, it's bothering him. He starts making some noise. So the owner and the guy that's learning all day, he's like, what's going on in the barn over there? Why is there noise? He says, we sold the horse already. He goes inside, and lo and behold, he sees his horse right there, sitting over there. Not only is his horse back, but it's full of gold. So he's like, well, you know, is a kosher Jew what he's going to do? He's going to start looking. Where's the owner? He goes back and forth, tries to locate the owner, and they found out a few days later that the owner died. The owner died in the cave. Didn't have to leave any, any, uh, you know, any children, and he, the money was his to keep. So when the, when the, when the students of the Al-Shachakadosh heard this, they went over to the Alshech and he says, Rabbi, how could this be? How could this be? He says, we have here a simple wagon driver. He came to one class. That's all. One class. He came to one class. Listen to a class, a topic about Emunah, about the Bidachon, and he went and he lived by it. And Hashem rewarded him. Not a week goes by and he's already a multimillionaire. He says, Rabbi, we've been sitting by you for years. Listening day in and day out to your emunah and all the other classes that you're giving. Where's our millions? Where's our sack of gold? So the Al Shalakadash goes to them and he says, This wagon driver, he's a simple Jew. He comes into the class, he listens to the topic, he sees the rabbi speaking about a topic, he trusts the rabbi, he believes in the Torah. So he says, Listen, this is what it is. 
It went straight to his heart. But it went straight to his, without any doubts whatsoever. But you, my students, he goes, he says, you guys are lamdanim, you guys are smart. I say something, so you analyze it. But then you ask questions on it, and it brings you doubts on it. And you wonder, is it really true? How could it apply? And if it could apply, how could it work? And if it could work, how is it going to be? Maybe it's my sense. Maybe you have all these questions, all these doubts, all these lack of emunah and bitachon. So hence, your bitachon was incomplete. And if your bitachon is incomplete, you didn't get this reward. Bitachon, emunah and bitachon means that you have complete reliance on God. Nothing else. This simple wagon driver heard something, believed it, took it to his heart, with 100% certainty, he knew that it was going to happen. He had a level that he goes to assume that you, who have been studying for years, don't have. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a crazy thought? You think about it, like we're learning, and sometimes somebody could come in, and you could be studying something for years, and then you have somebody who just hears an idea, internalizes it completely different than you, and soars to such a higher level than you ever did. And you think it's only the time of the Ashagadah. I can tell you, it's, nowadays, I speak to people who are not that religious. But the level of faith that they have, obviously it's faulty because how could they have so much faith in God when they're not listening to God, which we'll get to that later. But they have such a level of faith in God that there's like so much, like you could see the blessing that goes in. And again, I don't know what the reason of the blessing is, but... I would venture to say it's a lot because of the fact of their strong connection to the emunah b'tachon that they have. It's, it's really unbelievable. So when we take this concept and we think about it, you know, we're learning about emunah. And, you know, Baruch Hashem, we had the, the merit, the school, to be able to learn of this for, for quite some time now. And we're getting close to the end of this series, and you have to stop and think to yourself, and I have to ask this myself also, I've been teaching this for quite some time, where's our level of emunah? Yeah, we heard about it. We know the topics. We, we understand the ideas. We listen to it. We heard the stories. We heard the concepts. We heard the ideas. And we tried to internalize it. But if we pause for a second, and we're honest with ourselves, where is our level of emunah? Where is our level of bitachon? Do we have to continue working on it? Or is it something that, you know what? No, we feel like we're good. This is one of the classes that it's not like an halacha class where... You have the idea, and obviously you have to review it, and you have to memorize it, you have to keep on reviewing it. But it's very different when you're dealing with a topic that it's not only an intellectual topic, it's an emotional topic. And that's something you have to constantly review again and again and again and again. You have to internalize it more and more and more and more. The more that you review it, the more that you internalize it, the greater of level that you have. So that being said, what happens when we do something, and we th- spiritually speaking, and we think that we did it correctly. But we don't get the outcome that we intended of getting, whether it's a skula, whether it's whatever it is. We did something spiritual, anticipating a physical outcome, but that physical outcome didn't manifest itself into reality. And then we could get saddened, we could get upset, be like, Hashem, God, you didn't pull through. Come on, what's going on over here? I did what I was supposed to do. I was guarding my eyes. I was watching the way that I was dressing. I was going to learn to I was keeping, I was doing everything that I was supposed to. Where is my blessing? I davened and I didn't get answered. You know how many prayers I did and I still didn't get answered? I gave staka, but I didn't see a blessing. Where's the blessing? I was promised a blessing. I don't see it. 
So I want to share with you a story. It's a story about one of the richest Jews in the 20th century. His name was Rav Moshe, or, and he was known in the secular world, Paul Reichman. He lived in Toronto, Canada, and he lived from the year 1930 to 2013. He was born initially in Vienna, Austria. I want to bring you back to tell you what type of person this person was. He was born in Vienna, Austria, and during World War II, his family fled to Paris, they ran away to Paris, and from there they ran to Morocco, they lived there for quite some time, I believe it was 15 years, and then he went and he, uh, this, this uh, Moshe Rachman went and he went to learn in England under Harav Schneider, in a yeshiva called Taurus Emes. And during those times, the yeshiva suffered great poverty, they didn't have the basic necessities, they didn't even have food to give to the students, to the Bachram. The students were starving, they were hungry. So, the Rosh Shiva, the rabbi, the head, the, the head rabbi of the yeshiva, went over to one of the bakeries that had kosher bread. And he said, you know, negotiate. He said, listen, if you have any leftovers, old bread, that are all, you know, baked goods that you can't sell anymore, maybe you could give it to the yeshiva and we could feed the students of this. And the baker said, you know what, yeah, why not? I anyway throw it out, why not put it to a good cause? No problem. One condition, you have to send someone to pick it up and it has to be before we open, it has to be really, really early in the morning. He just said, fine, not a problem. The rabbi, the Rosh Shiva, goes and calls Moshe Rachman. And he goes and he says, listen, he says, we need food. He says, I'm tasking you with this task, that you will go to the bakery every morning, way before it opens, and bakeries open very early, and you will bring the food for the yeshiva. And Moshe Rachman agreed, he wanted to do it. The problem was, he didn't have a car. He didn't have a bike, he didn't have a wagon. He had to walk a huge distance each day to the outskirts of London, to obtain the bread and then schlep it all the way back to yeshiva. And he did this day in and day out. One day, the rabbi summoned Moshe Rachman and he says, because of all the hard work that you're doing, I'm going to give you a blessing that in the merit of this great mitzvah that you're doing, you're going to become very wealthy and you will be able to support Talmidei Chachamim, you'll be able to support Torah sages. After you know, I'm sure Moshe said, but Moshe said, yes, amen, and he went on to, to learning. He, afterwards, he graduated, he went on to learn in the gates at Yeshiva, which he went, then went to Eretz Yisrael, and he learned in the Panevich Yeshiva, a very high caliber Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, learned under the Raharav Shach, one of the Gdolei Hadol during that time. After that, he learned in Mir under Rav Avram Kalmanovich, which is also a Gadol Adol, and he also had a very close connection to the Chazon Ish, also a Gadol Adol. Now I want to give you where this guy, where this, where this person is coming from. He's coming from a very, very strong foundation of a Jewish upbringing, learning in the best yeshivot, dealing a very close relationship with the greatest rabbi sages. This is somebody in a very, very high level. After he got married to a woman by the name of Leah, they moved to Canada. And in 1956, he established a company. In Canada, he went to business and he opened up a company called Olympia Floor and Wall Tile Company. And they were, you know, starting up in this company and they needed a new warehouse. So he went and he built a warehouse for $70,000. This was in 1956. You're talking about $70,000 was a lot of money back then. And he built it and he realized he had an opportunity and he sold it a year later for $34,000 profit. Tremendous amount of profit for what what he put in. And... All of a sudden, he saw an opportunity over here. So he decided that he's going to start building factories for other, comp- other facilities that needed just like what he was doing. 
And he went and he started building these, these factories and he, and he went and he, he opened up a development company, a real estate development company. And he accepted very you know, difficult projects. And slowly, slowly he grew until he came into the opportunity of building the first Canadian place. This is Canada's tallest building that was built in 1975. And he built it. And he was successful in it. And eventually he expanded to New York City. And by the mid-1980s, this Moshe Rachman was known to be the largest developer in the world at that time. Forbes magazine ranked him the fourth richest family in the world in 1991. They were worth something like 12-something billion dollars. But despite his success, to tell you the way that this Moshe Rachman lived, he lived very modestly. He drove an old Cadillac. He had very strong connection to Yiddishkeit. He went and he supported the religion. He went and he built a number of yeshivot, a number of shul synagogues. He went also supported also hospitals. He went and he gave money very, very lavishly to other organizations that needed it. During this time when he was very successful, the Torah world was going into a lot of debt. So Araf Shach, the Gadol Adol, went and asked him to get involved. And he did get involved. And he gave with tremendous amount of generosity. He's giving large sums of money. To the point also that one, there, there was a, a housing crisis in, in Israel for the people that were sitting and learning to walk. So this Moshe Rachman went and he gave $10,000 to every couple that got married and wanted to buy an apartment. He, part of it was a grant, part of it was a loan, but mostly he forgave the, the loan as well. He felt this is his way of going and giving to, this, to people that are sitting and learning to walk. He, he, he paid a tremendous respect to Talmidei Chachamim, to, to these Torah sages, and when he ever gave this, his philanthropic endeavors, he, he did it with extreme modesty. So you think this person is so great in spiritual, and in physical, and, in, and financial, the only path for him is only for success. Look at it, he's only doing the best. He's, he's just giving and giving. In the early 1900s, 1990s, I'm sorry, he ran into some trouble. He went, he went into a, a business project in the Canary Wharf in England. Canary Wharf in England. It was the world's, at that point, the world's largest property development. And he took a risk and went all in. And unfortunately, it didn't pan out the way that he intended. And just two years later, 1992, his company, his investment company, uh, the development company, Olympia New York, collapsed under roughly $20 billion in debt. Business wasn't doing so well. He lost almost everything. From being multi-billionaires to losing most of their money. And these are people that they gave well over $50 million a year to charity. He, they used to come, their family, it was a family business, they used to come to Eretz Israel, they used to come to Israel. And they go to institutions, they go to Yeshivat and say, show us your accounting books. Show me your debt. If you have a way of planning not to stay in debt anymore, I'm going to cover all your debts. Right here, right now, I'm writing you a check, I'm covering all your debt. You know what that is? And not just in one place. They went from place to place to place, covering all people's debt. And they lost all their money. <clears throat> Can you imagine the question that people had? Look at this. Righteous people that they're doing such good things with their money. What's going on? So if Asher Zala Group is bringing this down, and he says a friend of his by the name of Rav Moshe Rom, he knew this Rav Moshe Rachman. He knew this Paul Reichman. And he asked him, he says, he asked this wealthy guy who just lost everything. And he says, how could this be? How could you lose everything? The Gemara says in Ta'anit, page 9a, that if you give Ma'asel money, you'll be rich. You gave. What happened? Listen to what Paul Reichman, what listen to what Moshe Reichman replied. He sighed and he goes and he says, do you think 
that we gave Meister properly? We should have been giving billions. But this was a great challenge for us. And I regret and I wish I would have fulfilled the mitzvah properly. That's what this philanthropist said. Now what that means, I don't know. I, I can guarantee you what it, from where his background is and what he said that he did, it seemed like he was giving you know, well over 10%. I don't know. But that's my, you know, it's what he said. This is what my assumption is. But listen to the lesson that you can learn from him. That he was doing so much good. And he could have easily said, I don't know, ask God. I did everything and everything. Instead of going and complaining to God and saying, Gosh, what did you do to me? All I do is I care about your children. I give and I give and I give and I give to everybody that asks them more. And still you make me, you, you, you make me lose everything? That's what he could have said. But he didn't. Instead of complaining to Hashem, instead of complaining to God, you know what he did? He looked into himself and he said, you know what, where could I do better? Maybe I am lacking. Maybe I could improve on something. How many times we daven for something and we don't get it? And we're saying, God, why? And maybe instead of saying, God, why? We should go look at ourselves and say, you know what? Maybe me, why? What am I doing that's lacking? I gave tzedakah, but I didn't get my, my, you know, my windfall. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. Instead of projecting our failures to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, maybe we should look internally and see what it is it maybe that we are doing something wrong. Maybe we could improve in some way, and maybe it's us and not HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not the Almighty. But going back to the story, the story doesn't end there. Despite the setbacks of the Reichman's family, they were able to successfully rebuild a small portion of their empire. They ended up becoming partners with George Soros, Lawrence Tisch, and Michael Price, and they were able to rebuild you know, quite a nice fortune after that. Not to back to where they were before, but they were able to go and to rebuild it. Now, I was thinking about the story. And again, I'm only thinking, you know, I don't know, but who knows if really he was intended on losing his entire fortune. And that was really the way that he was intended to live on for the rest of the days. But instead, HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw the way that he responded to his difficulties. HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw the way that he responded to, to his tests. How he responded to his losses. That instead of projecting it onto somebody else or some other being or some other entity or God, he said, maybe it's me. Maybe I could have do something better. And maybe, just maybe, in that merit, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you know what, if you think that way, I'm going to send you back some money. How many times in our life that we fall through something and we feel like we shouldn't be here? We feel like we gave so much to others. We feel like we grew so much spiritually. We feel like we prayed sufficiently enough that we should have gotten answered. And we didn't. We didn't get answered. So let us pause the next time we have this thought and think, you know what? Maybe it's not HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and wants to do for us only good. If it didn't get answered, maybe it's a lack of us. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just the answer was no. It could be a thousand things. But instead of putting the blame and taking the fall and saying, you know what, my prayers are not worthy. My, this is not worthy. I'm not, there's no point in me going on. Let us pause for a moment and say, you know what? No, let me continue. Let me continue what I'm doing, but now let me increase it. Let me change in myself and let me go even a step further. There was once a peasant who was working in a post office. Sorry, he went to a post office. And he wanted to mail a letter. 
And he put a stamp, did the whole, you know, went through the whole process, put the return address, put the direct address, put a stamp. He goes into the teller and he says he wants to mail this out. The teller looks at the envelope, it was a fat envelope, it was a heavy envelope, and there was one stamp. And he says, listen, he says, the envelope, you know, that you need more stamps for it, the envelope is too heavy. So this peasant goes and he starts laughing at this teller. And he says, listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth, you foolish person. You want me to put more stamps on it? It's going to make it even more heavier. He says, if anything, I should take off more stamps so that you go and it will be lighter. The Gemara goes in Gitim, on page 7a, it goes and says that if one's money is tight, if not, one's not making enough money, what should he do? He should give more tzedakah, give more charity. The question is, what are you talking about? Just the opposite. If I'm going and I'm running tight on money, I shouldn't give more to charity. I should keep more of myself because I need it. But says Rabbi Yitzchak the way that he goes and explains it in Ar Bidachon. And he says that people don't understand. Little do we realize that the extra tzedakah that we give is that extra little stamp which enables our letters to be sent to the destinations where it's, granted, where it's, where it's going to be granted our requests. So sometimes we think of something that is backwards. Like I prayed, I didn't get answered. I gave charity, I still didn't get I'm in a tight spot. And we think the correct response is what to step back. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, and we think about it, then we can really see that there is ways that we can improve, and instead of falling back, we can push forward. The Padavetri of Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Yosef Shalom Kahanamin, was once the yeshiva was in tremendous amount of debt. And even the, the supplier said, there's no more deliveries to the yeshiva. We can't, we're, we're done. So he decided he's going to make a fundraising trip. He went, into the, um, he, pl- he went on a plane to America. And uh, one of his you know, close students over there went and, and or, or, you know, tried to gather in a bunch of wealthy donors and put them into a large hall where he would be able to go. He's a very amazing orator. He would be able to speak very well. And hopefully he would be motivate the people to go and support the yeshiva and bring them out of debt and be able to, to pay off his, uh, all his suppliers so they continue sending the food and everything else that they needed for the yeshiva. So they're dry, they, he lands in America and they start driving to this hall. And as they're driving to the hall, the Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Kahanim, he goes and he sees there's a very big Muggin David, the Star of David, right in the front of the parking lot of this uh, hall. And he goes and says, what, what is this hall? So they said, it's, it's uh, like a, a synagogue. He says, uh, what type of synagogue is it? You know, something looked a little off then. And he said, listen, this, you know, this driver told him this particular synagogue is a conservative synagogue. But there is a hole that's separate from the shul, from the place where they pray. And he says, this hole is a kosher hole. Many people make weddings over here. Everything is kosher. And uh, the rabbi goes and says, it's very nice that everything is kosher, but I'm not going inside. And, you know, his student comes over to him. When he hears that he's not going inside, he says, Rebbe, he says, there are a few hundred people waiting for you, waiting to give you money. It's going to help your yeshiva. You got to come in. The rabbi says, I'm not coming in. He says, my yeshiva is not going to be kept on going by this means. You know, he's like, it's a conservative shul. You're like, you really, you can't do it. He says, nothing doing. So his student goes over to him and says, Rebbe, Rabbi, he says, these donors constantly give to the yeshiva. If I tell them you don't want to come in, they're going to be so angry, I won't be able to go and gather them again in the future. He says, you're going to lose them, not only for now, you're going to lose them for the future. The rabbi still refused. He says, I'm not breaking on my, this is my beliefs, I'm not breaking on my beliefs. So during this time, they're going back and forth. Somebody else went and entered into the hall and they made an announcement, took the microphone and announced, gentlemen, tonight's meeting is canceled. He says, what, is everything okay? Is the rabbi okay? He's like, no, the rabbi is right outside. 
but he's refusing to enter on the grounds that this is a conservative synagogue and this is not appropriate and he's not willing to enter. He says, however, we will reschedule and we'll send you the, all the invite for the, you know, for the other location. And they, made a reschedule, they rescheduled the meeting and out of respect, some of the people came, but some protested and said, they, were, they said, no, we're not coming. What is this? You're not coming in. We came out to you. You're not coming. We're coming here to give you money. You don't even come to the show. They were very upset. They didn't, uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't want to come. The many people, though, that did come, they were very impressed with the rabbi's integrity. And instead of going and giving them a certain amount, they went and they gave even more generously. Some people didn't show up. But the rabbi didn't lose anything out of it. As we know, the Pandit Vichyshiva still stands to this day. We have to go and we have to know that we are honest with our beliefs. You see here, the Pandit Vichyshiva, he was able, he had a belief. There was a lot of money on the line. There were so many reasons that he could have said, it's right for me to go in. Forget about it, it's right. It's a mitzvah for me to go in. I should go in. But he said, you know what? No. I believe in something. And if I'm honest in what I believe in, then I'm going to stick to my beliefs. I'm not going to go and I'm not going to change it because I have some other way out. If this is right, then this is how I'm sticking to it. And that's it. I remember hearing this you know, from, from a rabbi who was also a businessman. I remember hearing this story way back where there were two people that were in a business meeting, two religious Jews. And uh, there was, you know, they met with a whole company. And one of the women wanted to go. And, you know, after the meeting, they wanted to shake the people's hands. You know, afterwards, thank you for coming. You know, you know they, they shake everyone's hands. It's appropriate in certain business meetings, at least before COVID. And uh, um, one rabbi, one, it wasn't rabbi, one religious Jew, they shook their hands. And when they came to the rabbi, the rabbi said, I'm sorry, I don't uh, shake hands with a woman. And he, just so that she didn't get offended, he explained to her the difference of Shomadigia, things like that. Now, obviously, there's a certain heter which we're not going to get into in certain situations. We're, all out, we're not going to get into it. So this woman, instead of being upset about the rabbi and more impressed about the other guy, she was more impressed with the one who said, you know what, you stood up for your beliefs. If you stood up for your beliefs, you know what, then I want to do business with you. I feel if you're willing to stand up with your beliefs, if that's something you hold so severe, so I hold it, you know, I take that important. I take that as a high level of integrity. And that's why you have some people during the time of Sfirah where they want to shave their beards. Why? Because they're not, shaving, you know, they're not supposed to shave enough of their beards. You know, they, let's say they usually shave, but Sfirah, they, you know, they, they, uh, um, they, they, you're supposed to keep the beard on, but some people shave because of certain you know, ideas of losing money. But again, there's a lot, a lot of halakhic ramifications to this, and sometimes it's allowed. But in any case, in one particular scenario... This one non-Jewish person says, I don't understand, how come you have a beard? What, what's going on with your beard? And he says, no, it's during the time period where we're mourning. And he says, but I have other people that I deal with religious Jews that they uh, shave their beards. He says, yeah, I'm a little bit stricter. You know, and he goes on to explain to him. By hearing that, we think that we're going to lose money. But in fact, what happened was, again, 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 and I hear these stories, we're the person that kept the beard. He says, no, I respect that. I respect that you hold your belief so strongly. And because of that, they went, and not only did they not lose out, they gained more out of it. How important is that we're honest with our beliefs? So sometimes we have our beliefs, and then we tend to, you know, confuse it a little bit. And sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes we come, and we come to a certain, you know, situation where we can give very, very good excuses of why we're right with what we're doing. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, we really know the right response. I can't tell you how many times I have questions that come to me, and... I could see that the person knows what the right response is. And sometimes I don't say it. 
I figure this is a learning, a teaching opportunity, and I don't say what you're supposed to do. And I try to get it out of the other person. So what do you think that you need to do? I'm like, you know, and nine out of ten times, they usually come to the right conclusion. And the reason, by the way, that they come to the right conclusion is because they went and they asked the question. How many people have the same scenario but they just don't ask the question to a rabbi. They don't ask the question to their mentor or whatever else. They know that it's questionable, but they don't ask it. Those people, they fail. Nine out of ten times fail. But the people that ask, nine out of ten times they pass. Why? Because deep down they know, and they're a little bit honest with themselves, and that's why they ask. So all you need is a little bit of, of like direction, and people are able to direct themselves, and they're able to know, like, okay, fine, I know what I'm supposed to, be, what I'm supposed to do. With that in mind... With that thought process in mind, if you see somebody who is wealthy or you're dealing with your boss or something, you will never have a desire to go and flatter them if it doesn't agree with your principles. Let's say you have a boss and they say dirty jokes. What some people do, they laugh because uh, they feel like they have to because you know, otherwise they might lose it. Like, no, if you believe in something, you say, no, this is not right. You have to stand for your principles. Where do you have, if you're on a level that you're honest with where you're holding, then you won't, then you'll know how to respond it. I'm not gonna say you start berating your, your boss and start screaming at them and be like, you're a fool. You, you know, of course you have to do it in a smart way. But if you're honest with your beliefs and you're honest with what you're holding in your life and you have something, then you know where to stand up for your beliefs. And I gotta tell you, it's not, a, it's not a simple task. I myself has been, I've been tested with this. In fact, recently, and it took me a second. It took me more than a second. Sometimes I have to go and I have to speak to my wife and be like, okay, so what do you think? Sometimes my wife is my rabbi. She's the one who goes and guides me. And she goes and she tells me, no, okay, why? You have to do this, you have to do that. Like it's important to go and if you're not sure about something, if you have a question about something, stop for a second. Stop and think. And if you're not sure, if it, just ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. And if you, you can ask your spouse, and if that doesn't work, you ask a rabbi. And if you keep on going up the totem pole until you figure out what the right thing is to do. There was a woman that came to speak to the wife of Rabbi Ashazal Grubenstein. And she walked, she, she worked in this religious office, in a Haredi office in Eretz Israel. But this office, they spoke a lot of Lashon Hara. They spoke a lot of the, you know, speech that you're not allowed to speak about. Speaking bad about other people. <clears throat> so she went, and she went over to speak to the wife of the rabbi and said, listen, she went and she specifically wanted to go and work in a religious environment, in a Haredi setting, so she would be able to keep halacha. She says, but now we're dealing with Lashon Ha, what's supposed to do? So they brought this question to the rabbi, and the rabbi said, he went and he told them the severity of Lashon Ha. Lashon Ha, people don't realize, it's an Esul Dorata. It's a, it's a biblical prohibition. It's just like stealing or eating pork, you're not allowed to do it. But the rabbi said, listen, I don't want to tell her to give up her panasah, her livelihood, let her go and, and speak to a rabbi. Let her speak to a rabbi. So she went. Who did she speak to? None other than my Rashi Sheva Rabbi Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg. Passed away in 2012. She went over to Rabbi Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg and she told him the, the question. So the rabbi goes over and says, I, I don't understand why you're even asking this. He says, of course you have to quit immediately. What's the question? It's not even a question. You're sitting in an environment where it's not kosher. You leave. You leave. This is something that, for the rabbi, and it's something very interesting. The first rabbi that you went to didn't want to go into, he knew the right answer, but didn't want to say it. 
you know, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult, by the way. And I, and I agree with the rabbi's response. I would also have done the same exact... Of course, I don't... This rabbi, Rosh Hashanah Lubison, is a huge, huge rabbi. I don't have to agree. He doesn't need my agreement. But what I'm saying is I would have been on the same thought process. It would have came to me. I said, you have to go and speak to another rabbi. I don't want to deal with it. That's something... When you tell... That you have to have big shoulders to have on. Rabbi Chaim Ben had huge shoulders. Not only literally because he had 150 pairs of tzitzit that he used to wear on him. He used to wear... This is my... my I don't know if I told you this. I'm sure I told you this before. My Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Chaim Ben Hashanah, he used to wear, not once he tzit. He used to wear anywhere between, depending on his age, anywhere between 75 to 150 pairs of tzitzit every single day. One on top of another and then a bekech on top. And I, I was so awesome. He was shorter than me. And he would walk into the yeshiva. Let's see if I can get it in frame. He was literally this wide. Literally this wide. And it wasn't because he, you know, he pumped iron. It wasn't it. He was pumping tzitzit. He had one level, one tzitzit after another tzitzit after another tzitzit. And I once went over to his son, Rabbi Simcha Scheinberg, and I said, you know, what was the purpose of this? And in fact, I asked him this after Rabbi Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg passed away. When I went and I wanted to go and get a pair of tzitzit from Rabbi Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg. And Baal Hashem, I have it to this day, a pair of tzitzit that he used to wear. And I, uh, I spoke to Rabbi, to Rabbi Simcha Scheinberg, and one of the things he said, he says he puts it on for people that don't want to put it on. For those people that don't want it, he wants to go and put it on. There's such a big mitzvah, such a big... He wants to go and he wants to put it, put it on. So he had very, very wide shoulders. But not because of all his tzitzit. But not only because of his physical, but also his spiritual standing. He was a gadol adol. And he realized that something came to him. It was dishonest. No, what are you talking about? End of discussion. It's not even a question. It's, usur, it's forbidden. It's done. It's done. That's it. You gotta go. And in many companies, you have bosses that go and they start bark certain orders about being dishonest, whether it's in finance and telling the client and the interest rate or don't telling or rephrasing the interest rate or different things and people have to dance around it. But someone who believes in God knows that God is in charge. About two hours ago, I had a phone call dealing about money issues. And in general, I don't like to deal with money issues. I send this to you know, one of my rabbim. I said, you know, I gave them the contact number. I said, go speak to this posse. And um, I usually like to follow up and see what they say, you know, just to, you know, so I can, this is also sort of a learning process that I sort of, uh, you know, grow in as well. And it was a question resulting in some sort of dishonest business in, in a company. And, you know, when I heard it, when I heard even the initial question, you know, I knew that it, I, what I would say, no. It's, but it's easy to say no. It's easy for me to say no, it's forbidden. I don't, you know, like, maybe it's not, maybe there's some sort of, like, loophole that you have to go. So I said, dealing with livelihood, I did the same thing that, you know, Rosh Hashanah said, I said, go, and I spoke to somebody else. And what did the rabbi say? The rabbi said exactly the same thing that Rechaim Pernashamber said. He says, you don't do anything that's dishonest, that it's illegal, that's nothing, anything wrong you don't do. And this is a lesson that I, you know, it is a lesson that I took from it today. This is two hours ago. And that is, you know, certain questions I don't like to deal with, and I send it out. But there's certain things that I realize that it's not even a question. So probably, moving forward, I will plan on dealing with these questions. I won't pass this anymore. This is the lesson that I learned on today. And it's funny, because I was learning this, and then the question came in, and I was like, okay, no, but still I felt uncomfortable. But when it came back, exactly the same answer, I realized that, you know, there's no gray area about it. Sometimes when there's gray area, what, what I don't like, and I'll tell you this, you know, really should be like off, 
offline, but whatever it is, you know, the, uh, it is what it's supposed to be. People are supposed to hear it. When people come to rabbis for questions, it's very easy to say, not allowed, you shouldn't do it. And I don't like that. I, I, I don't. If there's a way out, especially if somebody's not on a high level, then if there's, a, if there's a gray area, or maybe there's a certain scenario when it's allowed, then it's my responsibility that you're coming to me that I can't just tell you it's not allowed. Maybe it is. Maybe it is, and maybe it is. I mean, I could tell you a story about a Gilgul, which it's a little bit running late, but now I said it already, so I'll have to tell it to you. What can I say? That, you know, I, I believe this story was with the Baal Shem Tov. I believe it was with the Baal Shem Tov. Going back, this was a, it was a green cover. as a story oh, with a book. I can't remember the name of it. Something, something about Gilgulim. Stories about Gilgulim. And there was, a, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov. He came over to a certain innkeeper. And this innkeeper had a son, which wasn't 100%. It was a kid. And the, the innkeeper goes over to the Baal Shem Tov, it was the Erev Shabbos, the Baal Shem Tov was the Erev Shabbos, and says, listen, I was about to shuck this chicken, and I notice, I started, and I see there's maybe a question if this chicken is kosher or not kosher. So the Baal Shem Tov says, says, why are you asking me? You know, why don't you go ask your son? I believe it was Baal Shem Tov. The rabbi said, why ask me? Go ask your son. And the son came up, the son was, was not 100%, he was mentally disabled. And the son, and the, the innkeeper was like, he didn't understand, it was like, my, like what? And, and, and Rosh didn't say anything, the, the son comes in, he looks back and forth, and he starts quoting different things, which the innkeeper did never even realize that his son even knew about this stuff. And then the son goes and it says, kosher. And the Baal Shem says, you hear? You see? Agreed. Fine, the innkeeper didn't say anything, you know, it's kosher, kosher, the rabbi said. He goes, the next day, the son goes to sleep, this mentally disabled son, and doesn't wake up. The Baal was there, and the, the father goes over and says, what's going on? He says, what happened? How come he didn't wake up? Can you, like, what's going on with my son? So the Baal, Baal Shem Tov, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov, goes and says, he says, your son is a reincarnation of a very big rabbi. And he says, one time, he was paskening. He was, you know, people came to him with a certain question about a certain chicken. And he said that this chicken was impure, but it was really pure. And really... It should have been pure, and he went, and this was a poor family, they didn't have chicken for the Shabbos, that, that, that Shabbos. So he had to come back. And, he, and when God puts us back in this world, God sets us up in a certain way that we'd be able to pass our test, we're going to have the test again. And we have an ability to pass it or fail it again, but this was his test. His test was to come back to this world. He was mentally disabled, but he came with such clarity when the question for his reason of being in this earth came into fruition. And when he came to the conclusion that it was kosher, he finished his tafkid, he finished his rectification, his purpose of being in this world, and that's why he returned his soul to his maker. So we see over here, it's easy to say no. But you have to be very careful. Somebody comes over to you for a question. You can't just say forbidden, forbidden. You can't just say permitted, permitted. That's also not. You have to know, what is the right thing to do? And you have to know that if it's not in your specialty, you have to go and say, give it to somebody else. I have had people that came over to me from other rabbis and said, he said it's forbidden. And I know for a fact it's not. And it's very, very... I would never speak against another rabbi, but it's easy to say forbidden. It's easy. And it's something that's in the gray area. Someone needs therapy. They go to a certain rabbi, says you don't need therapy. I strongly disagree with that. I strongly... If somebody needs therapy, again, not everybody needs therapy, but if someone needs therapy, of course you got to send them to mental health. You know, there's, it's, it's just like you take care of your body, you have to take care of your mind. Yes, there's other ways to go and take care of it, whether you're on a high spiritual level, but not everybody's on that level. And you have to know the person. 
And I had, you know, like, it's very, very uncomfortable to get involved in these types of situations. But you have to know, it's not only about saying no, you have to know when to say to say yes. And if you're not sure, you go and you take it out, don't go and take put it on your shoulders. Do you have broad shoulders to say it on? I know I don't. I know if I have something that I know that I that's right, that's wrong, I say it. If not, I pass it on. It's not. It's, it's a very, very serious thing when somebody comes and asks you a question. It's not a simple matter. But when dealing something with dishonesty, with something illegal, the lesson that I learned today is that it's simple. It's forbidden. There's nothing to discuss about it. Period. Done. If it's wrong, it's wrong. There's nothing to discuss about it. And the more that we realize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is signing our paycheck, the more that we realize we don't have to dance around our bosses, our partners, or whatever other business ideas that, that, that go on. Also an important factor when thinking about this, when thinking about specifically in money, the Chavot HaVavot goes and says, a concept that I speak about very, very often, that if you are supposed to make a certain amount of money, you are going to get it anyway. If you acquire money through bad or degrading means or illegal means, then you take what God has already decreed that you will have. Meaning that you'll get it, but now you'll, you, you'll lose out of spiritual and physical affairs or whatever it is that you're having. If you're supposed to get something, Agadish Baruch can send it to you in a legal way. He doesn't need to send it to you in an illegal way. And, you know, I've, I've had people, I have even students, close students of mine that came to me, where they, their employers do not they do not pay the commission to the employees. I had a student of mine that went and worked for a guy who was a multimillionaire, had a tremendous amount of money. And he was supposed to pay him a commission of $2,000. A small, not even a small amount, doesn't even blip on the radar. But for whatever reason, this guy is a little bit twisted, and I say it twisted in the head, and when my student went and asked him for money, he laughed in his face. He says he refused to pay. I think in the end he got the money, but how long did he have to go and schlep it out of him? And it, it always boggles my mind. I'm like, how do these people sleep at night? How? Yeah, people that go and they, they straight up they go they they take people's money for investment, and they go and they keep it for themselves. Ponzi schemes, whatever it is. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Or they take it and pay for somebody else, or they don't even pay for somebody else. They just take it. I know somebody. I heard a story recently where somebody went and they invest. Somebody invested a few million dollars for a certain business. They didn't even invest anything in that business. They went and they bought their children houses, million dollar houses. That's what they do with the money. How do these people sleep at night? How? Like, I, I, I have a, like, it, it bothers me. Like, you know, I remember I was talking to my neighbor and I asked him this. I was like, I'm like, you know, he's in the business world and he's, you know, he deals with a lot of very, very wealthy individuals and he has also come across some sketchy people. And I, told, I asked him, I said, how do people go and sleep at night? You know what he told me? So these people, they sleep like a baby. It doesn't bother them. It doesn't, I mean, there must be a personality disorder. There must be some sort of mental disorder going on because I don't see how somebody in the normal state of mind can fall asleep knowing that they just stole money from somebody else. I don't know. There was a famous uh, term that was called, it's nothing personal, just business. Have you ever heard of this? It's nothing personal, just business. This is something that's coined by somebody by the name of Otto Biederman. Otto Biederman was known as Otto Ada Daba Berman. He was a math genius, 
And he ended up becoming a, a sort of an accountant for the mob. And he came up with the, the phrase, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Whether he stole or messed somebody over or whatever it was. I'm like, how do you say that it's nothing personal, just business? What, what are you talking about personal? This person sweat and bled over this money. And you went and you took the money. The money is called in the Gemara Damim. Damim is from dam, from blood. Meaning that a person went and, he, and he, his blood and sweat and tears went into this money. And you go and you take it and you say it's nothing personal? Of course it's personal. You just took away the life force of this person. This person went and sweated and bled for this money. And he just, you just took it away and saying it's nothing personal? How could somebody go and live with themselves? How? You know, like again, I can't judge, even though I'm sounding very judgy at this point, but I really can't judge it because you never know how people end up in this situation. It's never usually like they wake up one morning and be like, okay, let's steal from somebody. I mean, some people are, and I guess those people, whatever. But most people are generally good people. They're not intending to go and swindle and cheat and, and defraud other people. But after the fact, how do they not seek some sort of, you know, mechila, forgiveness? For, like, how? I don't know, you know? Yeah, you're right. Like, the comment that went in must be a psychopath. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how. I, and I know people, I know people that money was stolen from them, and they lost their business. They lost everything. And then they lose their families. And then they lose their emotional sanity. You know what? Uh, people don't realize. You take money from somebody else. You don't realize the outcome from that. The Shalom Bayit issues. The children issues. The emotional stability. The spiritual issues. You literally can kill a person from that. That Damim. It comes from damn Blood. You really suck the blood out of a person. So why do people do this? Why do people steal? Why do people go and swindle and cheat and they defraud? Listen, Rabbi, business is difficult. We've got to make money. i got bills to pay. My yacht has an expensive mortgage on it. My G50 or whatever the private planes, I don't know, a G something. Ha, ah, i got to pay that for that. How am I going to go and how am I going to support that? And it might not be that. It might just be I have to pay mortgage on my house. Forget about all the, the fancy things. I have to pay mortgage. So I have to, this is the only way. Says the base Alivi, if somebody goes and thinks that he has to go and gray is area and panasa to make a living, that means he doesn't have proper emunah And if you think about it, think about something like this. Somebody, imagine somebody goes into a desert and he's so thirsty, traveling, thirsty, dying for thirst, and finally finds this unclean water pit, like dirty water. Like I'm talking about like Coney Island ocean water. You know, like the dirty water that you can't see like a centimeter below surface. Like usually you go to like places in the, somewhere in the Caribbean where you can literally see like 30 feet on the ground and it feels like the water is cleaner versus you go to some other places where you put your hand in and your hand sort of disappears. He finds this type of disappearing water and he's just so thirsty. He just starts like drinking it up. Quenches his thirst and throwing up whatever. We should know from this. And then he starts traveling a little bit more. And he walks not another 15 steps. And he sees a well of pure, clean, filtered, beautiful Poland spring water. Literally from the Poland spring, which I don't think exists, but whatever it was. Beautiful, clear, crystal water. How much does he regret what he previously did? Drinking up all that filthy, disgusting water. 
It's the same way when somebody goes through life and they live through life through defrauding, through, through sketchy means. If only they would have realized that HaKadosh Baruch Hu would have given them that, those things in the kosher way. Whether it's your pleasures in your life, whether it's your desires in your life, whether it's your interpersonal relationships, everything was going to come to you in a kosher way, but you went and you took it out in a non-kosher way. You know what's the biggest kicker after 120? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to show you, he said, if you would have just waited another 15 steps, you would have seen that you would have gotten everything that you wanted. Everything that you wanted. And so you have a lot of people that they go through some sort of financial difficulties. And they blame their bad fortune on evil eyes, or it's bad luck, or maybe X, Y. How many times have I sat with people and they say, Rabbi, I have an evil eye and that's why I'm not successful. And I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure about this, but let me ask you, do you keep Shabbat? They're like, no. So I'm like, forget about the evil eye for a second. Like literally, forget it. You're like dealing with somebody who has a gunshot to their heart, and then they have a cut on their finger, and they go to the doctor and be like, I'm dying in here. Can you please help my cut? And be like, they'll be like, well, hold up on the cut. You got a gun shot wound in your heart. I don't know how you're alive and how you're walking. It makes no sense. Like you're breaking Shabbat. How are you, how are you walking? You're, like, that's where you feel the problem is? That's where you got to the point to be like, no. Yeah, it's because my neighbors are jealous of me. Well, if your neighbors are jealous, then maybe get off TikTok, maybe get off Snapchat, maybe get off Facebook, maybe get off Instagram, and stop showing off the Lamborghini that you once rented 17,000 years ago for all the money that you had in, the, in your bank, and maybe they won't be jealous of the fact that you can't put gas in your Toyota Corolla. Maybe. Maybe stop showing off. Maybe that's the reason. But forget about that. Keep Shabbat. What's going on? Keep kosher. Sit and start dressing modestly. You know, I had a woman that came over to me once. In a point of the, that she was just completely immodest, coming to speak to a rabbi. I'm like, where do you think your problem is? Be like, no, because um, uh, you see what happened was, is that I got this certain, ra- that, uh, I got this evil eye. And I'm like, duh, 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 in the nicest way possible. There's something wrong with this picture. Alright, and let's play that game from highlights. Hey, you guys remember highlights? I know. What's wrong with this picture? Like, what's wrong? There's a scenario here that's wrong. And that is, we have to understand that if we go and we, if we rebel against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we rebel against God, then how can we go and anticipate the salvation? We have to go, we have to listen to God. We have to listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. <coughs> Excuse me. The more that a person lacks emunah, the more that a person lacks bidahon, the more that they're likely to contemplate the sources of making illegal money. And money that transgresses the Torah law, lying, cheating, stealing, withholding, salary, fraud, those are cursed money. And not only, this is something crazy, not only does it, does, does it's not a blessed money, it's a cursed money, but it also damages your kosher money. Like why, why deal with dishonest money? It just brings a bunch of troubles onto you. There's no point. You think you're going to be outsmart God? If God decreed that you're supposed to make X amount of money, 
You could go and you could say, let's say God decreed, you know what, you're going to make this year $75,000. And you make $75,000, but you cheat, you lie, you steal, you're able to go and you're able to pull in 150 double. You think you could cheat God? What's going to happen? There's going to be a lawsuit. There's going to be a medical expense. And at the end of the day, at the end of the year, you're going to come netting out exactly what you were supposed to net. I had a friend of mine uh, that was, you know, this is growing up. This is when that, uh, you know, years back before, uh, before I am who I am today. And he was doing sketchy things. And he was making a lot of money. And it was unbelievable. He was making a ton of money. And all of a sudden, unfortunately, things caught up. And there was lawsuits. And there was a lot more other than just lawsuits, which I don't want to get into. There was a lot more problems that, that, that came up. You can't... You're not smarter than Akadosh Baruch If God wants you to give you something, He can give you something in a kosher way. All the tricks in the world are not going to help what was decreed on Rosh Hashanah. And not only that, is that if you go and you steal, you cheat, not only do you lose that, but you also get punished for that. Which makes no sense. I mean, we spoke about this before, but let's say somebody goes and someone gambles money, and even though the fact that the gambled money is not blessed money, and it, you know there's a whole shebang of issues that's going on with that, but even furthermore, like all the hardship, the pain and anguish that you cause to your loved ones, the children, the wife, the spouse, you're going to also be punished for that. Like, like it's a it's a lose lose situation. There's no winning out of it. I want to finish off? It's getting a little bit late. I want to finish off two two short stories. There was a um, construction company in Kiryat Sefer in Israel that they uh, went bankrupt. What happened was the owner took $4 million of money for himself and he caused the company to fold because he took it for himself and didn't put it into the, into the you know, real estate that he was planning, it was supposed to do. And 200 people in Kiryat Sefer are now without a home without something that they already paid for. And it was something interesting happening. So we know the, you know the government got the owner, put, you know, indicted him, but they also indicted the employees as well. Why? Because the, the employees were covering for the owner. They knew of the owner's shortcoming. They knew what they were. They cooperated with the boss. So now everybody is suffering for it. The responsibility was shared with everybody. You don't want to be part of a situation. If you're in a situation where something bad is happening, something illegal is happening, something non kosher is happening, get out of that situation. Because if push comes to shove, you're going to pay for that as well. Rabbi Shazal Gubinson said that he had a... Uh, um, him and his family want, had to go to America for a simcha. And his parents offered to pay for the tickets. And back then, there was a company called the Olympic Airlines. And they were offering very cheap tickets for students. At that point in time, the rabbi was married already with a few children, and he was teaching at the time. And he did not consider himself a student. But the travel agent said, it doesn't matter. So the Olympic Airlines told all the travel agents that they do not care who the person buying the ticket was, if they said they were a student, they would have received the, di- the discount without any question asks. That seemed pretty enticing. So he went, and he wasn't sure what to do, so he went and he asked his rabbi. He says, what am I supposed to do? This is Rabbi Binyamin Hatzad, Binyamin Zilber, Rabbi Hatzad Zilber, And he asked him, can I utilize this loophole? So he told him, the rabbi told him, he says, there's no such hetter, there's no leniency as a lie just because they will accept your lie. Just because they will accept it doesn't mean that you're allowed to do it. You know, people come to me. I've had so many students, unfortunately. Now I hope that they're better off and they stop doing this. But, you know, it came from a secular background. And uh, it was popular in the circles to do some sort of insurance scams. 
But Rabbi, you don't understand. The insurance company knows that we're going to do it already. They anticipated. They even made sure and they put it in. Blah, 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 blah. All the reasons. I'm like, it doesn't matter if they send you a letter and said, please steal from us. You're not allowed to steal. That's it. It's period. There's no other questions that are asked. So it's getting late. Really, I have a little bit more to speak about. We'll push it off for a different time. But the truth of the matter is we have to be we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, honesty is super important. Trust is super important in relationships and business and everything. But just as important, if not more, is honesty with ourselves. Where are we holding in our lives? Stop for a second. Do a little bit of introspection. How are you doing? Where are you holding? Do you feel that you are on the level that you ought to be on? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But think again if you feel like you are. And then the next time that you do something and you don't get answered the way that you anticipated or wanted or expected to be answered, stop and think. Am I going to blame God that He didn't answer my prayers? That I didn't get my promotion? That I didn't get X, Y, and Z that I wanted to and I desperately you know, desired for it and I really deserve it? Or maybe instead of blaming God, or I'm blaming my spouse, or blaming my children, or blaming somebody else, I stop for just one moment and say, you know what? Let me look in the mirror. Maybe it's me. Maybe I need to do something different. And we don't know how much power that, that holds. And we don't know, again, I said this is on my own, that if the Reichman family, who knows if they came back to their wealth just from that introspection of realizing, you know what? I'm not going to blame God. I'm going to look to myself and do better. And with that, I give you all a blessing that we be able to look into ourselves and not blame anybody else, but look into ourselves and grow from our shortcomings. Again, we shouldn't have any shortcomings, but if it does so happen to come upon us, instead of putting a blame on somebody else, we would stop for a second, look into ourselves, look into the mirror, and say, you know what? Instead of blaming ourselves, what can I do better? Now we'll open up to any questions. No questions. Okay. Amazing. I want to wish you all a happy, successful, amazing week, life, year. Just like everything uh, amazing. Hi, Rabbi. I have a question. Yes, of course. Where were the Shiva team buried? Ooh. I know it's not in this topic, but I asked someone else and he didn't know. So um, I'm trying to think if we know where all the Shvatim are buried. We know Yosef was buried in, in Eretz Israel, and there's certain you know there was a whole, whole story about that where they um, the Arabs went and they burnt it, they burnt it, uh, burnt the cave. Well, it was a whole big uh, story. I don't think it's accessible to this day. Um, I'm trying to remember of any other Shvatim. It should be fairly quick search that I could probably go and look it up, but I believe we do know where some are buried. Why don't people like go there, or they make it obvious, or like nobody knows? Um, probably because of accessibility, but also, but also it could be because of uh, because of um, because of the fact that it might be dangerous. Now, uh, you know, or controversial, meaning that we're not sure of where they're actually buried. I remember once doing. I was in yeshiva and I was and I went and they um, they went and they they brought us to the cave of Mordechai and Esther, which is like 
you know, you never really hear about that. And they, you know, it turned out that, you know, not everybody maybe agrees with it. It's like sort of like far off, but we did go and we did find it. So I guess maybe something is, um, is not uh, there. But I, there, I believe the Sefer HaYashar brings down where the certain Shvatim are buried. And we have to look into it of where, um, where exactly it is. Yeah. And yeah, it has to be, yeah. It has, it has to be looking at it. Everybody's over, over what I have to take with yourself, everyone else, the Shvatim. The what was that? I'm sorry. Right? That they were brought out the same time, the bones of the Shvatim were also brought out, of course, out of Egypt. Um, well, the, uh, yeah, I, uh, that's a good point. Yes, I don't believe they're all buried in Egypt. In fact, I don't know if any of them are buried in Egypt, if my, if my understanding. I may be wrong they, with they that. They took the bones with them, right? Well, they took the bones specifically of Yaakov, um, Yaakov and Yosef. Well, Yaakov was taken out. Yosef was also taken out. The rest of the Shvatim doesn't, doesn't mention anybody else. It doesn't mention it, but I venture to say that there are not, I don't recall any, again, I may be wrong, because I have to look into it. I haven't, uh, it's actually a very good question. Um... I haven't looked into this, but I know, I believe the Sefer Yashar does bring it down, some, some, something along those lines. So we have to look into it. If you're really interested, I could try and find it for you. Send, send me a message privately and I'll see if I can find some information for you. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Of course, of course. Any other questions? Oh, we had another question over here. Okay, the question is, how to do chuba on cheating for an exam, knowing that if I go back, I would do it? 100% again. That's a good question. This is a, common, this is a good question. Let's say you cheated on, on an exam and you graduated. Um, I have thought about this question before. I haven't received it from anybody. But I, it's a question that I'll have to think about. I don't know. I don't know how. If let's say you cheated on an exam. How do you do chuba on it? If you're working in the field, then I would say that you should make sure that you know the material well that you cheated on, that you, if, especially if you need it. Um, but well, I, it was in high school, so yeah, my third grade. I don't know. Right. <laughs> Generally speaking, I would say just to leave it. Uh, but it's it's a good question. It's something I would have to contemplate. It depends can on the situation. Lie, can you lie to the government about your income to get health insurance for free, or that's considered still lying? No. Yeah, you should not lie to the government to get health insurance. I know that's a common issue, and I know it comes problematic. But you should not you should not lie to the government to go and get something, even though. It's problematic. Again, there are legal ways to do something and there's illegal ways to do something. If it's legal, then it's allowed. If it's not legal, then at, by no means are you allowed to do it. And but how do you know if it's legal or not? Because organizations do it for people all the time. So that depends on if the organizations are doing it. Again, I don't know. It's a, it's a little bit of a vague question of what they're doing. But some, some things... Sometimes it is legal, and again, I'm not a specialist in this field, but, but uh, there are companies, I have a friend of mine that has a company that does this, that he gets people Medicaid, um, but there is something called like a pool trust, which is a legal way of doing things, from my understanding, where you take, so you have certain money in your bank, and you can't have certain money in your bank and have Medicaid at the same time, so they put money in a pool trust, from my understanding, again, I'm not a maven in this fully, but from my understanding, that is 100% legal, so what they do is they take the money, and they move it to a pool trust, and then, now their person is eligible for the insurance. So, assuming that it's legal, again, I'm not a specialist in this, but for my vague, you know, recollection of a, you know, a conversation that I must have had five plus years ago, 
I believe that it was legal and I believe there was nothing wrong with it. Again, if it's along those lines, then it's fine. But if you go and you're making $300,000 and you're writing on the government paperwork that you make $25,000 and there's nothing to lie about it because you want to go and get Section 8 and all that thing, obviously that's very, 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 very problematic. And it could also result in a Chilul Hashem. Thanks. Okay. All right. Oh, here's a follow-up random course. Yeah. I would probably say, I mean, I would have to look into it, but my initial gut reaction is, what can you do? Like, you can't, you're going to call your teacher and be like, hey, by the way, I don't know. Yeah. Let's talk it offline, because it depends more of a, of a thing. But, but it's a good question, and it has to be dealt with on a case-by-case. I don't want to give a straight-out uh, answer. What about lying if you get vaccinated to get somewhere? No, that's a problem. That's a big problem. That's also sakanas nefashas. That's a great question. That people go and they get fake documents that they got a vaccine so they could get to certain countries or certain places. That is, I, I again, I, would ha- I never saw a chuva about it. I never saw, but I, my initial thought for that is that it's very problematic, not only because it's lying, but also because of the fact that you're putting other people at risk. Because if you're vaccinated, you're less of a chance of being a carrier from my understanding. And if you're if you are vaccinated, then you're not a ch- then you're you're producing you're you're putting people more at risk where the government is trying to go and prevent that. So that can be very very problematic. Again, more looking into it has to be done about it. But I would strongly strongly go against it. If you what I, okay, so follow up to that. If you already had COVID and it's all political, right? So that first of all, if you have COVID, it also depends on your antibodies. Um, and that is also a big factor, that if you had COVID a year ago, your antibodies are probably pretty low. Um, so it all depends on that factor as well. Even if you had COVID, this is a good question, if you had COVID, and you lied about saying that you're getting a vaccine, I would still say it's problematic. Put it this way, it's illegal to do that. And I'm wondering, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe somebody has got caught for doing that, and they're being like sentenced for like, many, many years in prison, or has a possibility of being sentenced to many, many years in prison for selling documents that says that you are vaccinated when you're really not. So even though it's political, if it's illegal, you cannot do it. Federal crime, yep, thank you. So, yeah, strongly recommend, big no-no. If you, it's better that you don't go to that location than lie, even if it's for a mitzvah or whatever it is. Okay, looks like that was all the questions. Right? Thank you all for joining. Especially, I've got to say, especially tonight. That was a small crowd that joined us on uh, Zoom. Which gives us opportunity. We have to say that everybody is welcome to join, all, especially our woman class on Zoom every Thursday night. Every woman is welcome to join us on Zoom on uh, Thursday night to hear the live class. Uh, if you want to, you can reach out to me at RabbiZitron at TorahAnytime.com and I could um, send you the link to the WhatsApp group so you can have all the details of the information. But because we had such a small group, and for all you that did join, I want to give each and every single one of you a special blessing that I really can't do these classes without a live view. I have a hard time speaking to myself. Uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, it hasn't come to that. But uh, I want to give a special blessing for all those that did come. That Hagadish Baruch should give you tremendous amount of bracha, hatzlacha, siyata deshmaya, parnasa, shalom bayis, and just you should have the ability to continue not only growing for yourself spiritually, but also helping other people's grow. Because I want to tell you that by the fact that you came to the live classes, it helps the class. It help, the class becomes better when there is people involved in it. So be, each one of you are part of this, a part of this shiutua, and any benefit that comes out of it, it's you know also your schut as well. So I want to thank you for being part of it and uh, hopefully to see you in the future classes as well. 
Thank you all for joining. Have an amazing, amazing week. Shabbat shalom l'kulam. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.